You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. I'm Anastasia Schacht and joining us today from Paris will be Professor Sergei Guriev, currently holding a professorship at the Sciences Po and looking back at working for European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, leading the New Economic School in Moscow and he also taught in Princeton and MIT. For those of us who speak Russian or understand Russian, you definitely know Sergei Guriev from the Open Lectures on History of Transformations of Post-Communist Economists. I'm very happy to have you here today and looking forward to our talk. Thank you very much, Anastasia, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm currently working on my PhD here in Vienna on history of science, played out internationally in the late Cold War era with particular interest on Soviet psychiatry. Thus, I'm also quite enticed to see how our disciplines will feature against each other, converge and come into dialogue. And the first question I would like to start with concerns the impact of economic factor in prognosis on longevity and transformation of autocracies. I wonder in how far economic crisis alone can disrupt the coherence of a state system to tear it down. And what are the other further factors maintaining autocracies and if withdrawn, pulling them down and forcing them to transform? Thank you, Anastasia. This is indeed the fundamental question in um, studies of autocracies and political economy of autocracies. The 80s in Soviet Union is a very interesting episode. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a review of a book on Gorbachev's struggle to save Soviet economy by Chris Miller. This review came out in the Journal of Economic Literature. It's not just a review of a book. It's also a summary of my views on how things uh, progressed in the uh, 1980s. So you write that economic slowdown was very important for Gorbachev's reforms. So Soviet Union ran out of economic steam, ran out of sources of economic growth sometime in 70s and 80s. Another book I would recommend to read about this is uh, Igor Gaidar's The Collapse of the Empire, which shows that once the factor of fear was removed and Soviet Union started to think about reforms, eventually they discovered oil. Oil prices doubled and then doubled again in the 1970s. So Soviet Union delayed the reforms and then it became unreformable. Okay, so the lack of reform and then the oil prices is an extra factor. This is something that political scientists call the Tocqueville paradox. So Alexis de Tocqueville said that Well, sometimes the reforms are coming so late that the system is not reformable anymore and the reforms actually worsen the situation because expectations are high and reformers cannot reform. So the change were there, but decades of adverse selection of leadership, of creating anti-reform interest groups, build a system which was not reformable anymore. And in this review, I discuss also the relationship between Soviet reforms and Chinese reforms. A lot of people would say, why won't Gorbachev follow Chinese way? Precisely. The China is an alternative scenario to Yugoslavia, for example. This book by Chris Miller shows that Gorbachev was actually paying a lot of attention to Deng Xiaoping's reforms, but it was not easy to copy Deng Xiaoping's reforms because unlike China, 
Soviet Union was industrialized. It had uh, powerful anti-reform interest groups, defense industry, energy industry, agricultural lobby, regional leaders. And all of that created the difficulty of copying Chinese systems. Now, going back to your fundamental questions about factors in transformation and collapse of autocracies. Together with my co-author, Daniel Triesman, we wrote a series of papers and we are now finishing a book about modern autocracies and how modern autocracies differ from the previous generation of autocracies based on fear and mass repression. Today's autocracies are based on information manipulations, on spin. The new spin dictators or informational autocrats care about the economy, but they also sometimes manage to survive economic decline because they control information. Since you mentioned uh, your own Russian roots, you probably follow what's going on in Russia now. In Russia, again, there is economic stagnation. Incomes today are 10% lower than in 2013. And yet Putin commands some genuine popularity. He's not supported just by a minority. And the reason for that is Putin's regime is really skillful and innovative in controlling information. So he can convince the public that, yes, we are going through economic trouble. We are not delivering income growth. But without me, things would be much worse. This is what is new about today's autocracies. Economic factors matter a lot, especially it is important without ideology. In Soviet Union, you could say, well, we tightened our belt because we stand up for the bright future. We have a greater good. You would say that there is no ideology today in Russia. Today, there is no real ideology in modern autocracies. So the regimes which do have ideologies are very few. So you need to convince the public that you're a competent leader. The modern autocracies do that with information technology, internet, globalization. And we see how skillful some of those autocracies are in convincing the voters. Eventually, it's not going to work. But for a while, you can prolong the life of the regime through this innovative use of information. And some of these regimes are doing better. Some of these regimes do less well. Some of these regimes see that there is no chance they can play this game, so they go back to fear and repression. And we may actually see that happening in Russia as we speak. You can also see that in Belarus. You've seen that in Venezuela, where reasonably popular Chavez regime was replaced by Maduro regime, which became much more brutal. But overall, if you can convince people that you are the best option they have, you don't need fear. You can rely on information. This is precisely what brings me to the next question on the intellectual elites co-opted or uh, willingly participating in the maintenance work of the autocracy. This is the mechanism of the government bringing the intellectual elites or let's say educated strata to willing co-optation with the regime by offering them economic advantages, cultural capital, prestige, so bonuses that outweigh the action. But would you say there is a certain tipping point or a moment, a measure, how much these economic bonuses and cultural capital outweigh? Where is this decision between acting or non-acting lies? The modern dictatorship is functioning in the world where the role of human capital, the role of education is very important. So if you think about old-style dictatorships, you can, for example, observe North Korea today. North Korea doesn't deliver high incomes exactly because it's an autarkic regime which doesn't rely on trade and investment, doesn't rely on modern education. If you want to 
deliver income growth, you have to embrace globalization, information technology, modernization. And this is what majority of today's autocracies do. They say, well, we are not repressive and we are delivering some kind of prosperity. With all the stagnation of incomes in today's Russia, Russians live as well as ever. Well, I mentioned 2013. 2013 was an exceptional year when Russia was a high-income country for a year. But even today, when Russia is an upper-middle-income country, Russia is one of the richest middle-income countries. In that sense, of course, Russia is a beneficiary of globalization, of education, and without that, you cannot deliver even middle incomes. Now, you need educated people. However, the problem is if people are educated, they start asking questions. They also start thinking about how best they can implement their potential. And in today's world, if you're an entrepreneur, of course, you need access to global markets. Of course, you need foreign investment. Of course, you need your kids to get educated in a modern university. So elites matter. Informed classes matter. Now, the question is how you co-op those people. And this is what those autocracies do. That's what we describe in our papers. We show that the autocracies offer these elites, these educated classes, a Faustian bargain. You get co-opted and I pay you. You become part of the regime and you get a stake in the regime. And actually, in order to get a stake in the regime, you have to be overpaid. So it's not just I pay you, I overpay you. I pay you more than your market income. So you know that if regime changes, you will lose. And this is why corruption is so important, because a lot of people who support such autocracies are involved in operations, in business transactions, which are not really legitimate, which would not exist if regime changes. Now, the other side of the bargain is if you say no to me, I will make sure that your life is not great. Some people go to jail. Some people get kicked out. Some people cannot implement their business potential. And this is the bargain. So I need to silence the educated people who understand what's going on in one of the ways, either to bribe them into silence or to repress them or censor them into silence. And this is, this is the choice. Another choice is to kick them out. And this is a huge difference between today's regimes and previous generations of dictatorial regimes. Soviet Union was a regime where you cannot leave. Today's dictatorial regimes actually encourage emigration. If Mr. Putin is asked how he treats brain drain, he says, well, that's fine. We are a free country. People look for a better life. What's not to like? Of course, that slows down economic growth. But as long as you control information and can explain to the public that slow economic growth is not your fault, that's fine. So you asked about the tipping point. So indeed, at some point, the number of educated people is so large that no longer you have sufficient resources to silence them. And this is an arms race between education that generates more people who are critical and repression, censorship, surveillance technology. For example, in China, you see how artificial intelligence is so efficient. In fact, the systems now recognize walks of people. So there is an arms race. We don't know what's going to happen. Yet there is a chance that you have to silence so many people that you simply don't have enough resources to silence them. And that's 
what's going to happen. Russia and Singapore, which you can call informational autocracies yet, these are the two countries where education is comparable to the European countries, and yet they remain autocracies. But there is a critical difference here. Singapore is actually moving into more liberal direction, and in Russia, it's vice versa, in the sense that Russian regime understands it's facing an existential threat. And maybe what we are observing now is the Russian regime is actually saying, I cannot maintain this equilibrium anymore. So there is a tipping point. And this tipping point is leading me to a hard choice to move to the fear dictatorship based on repression. So it represses out of fear for its own existence. Another feature where Russia and many post-communist countries are different is very high level of education, but education in engineering and math and not in social science. In order to become critical, you need to learn more in terms of political science, economics, sociology, history, rather than just math skills. Now, one last bit of data I would mention. In non-democratic countries, people with higher education are less happy about their governments. They understand that non-democratic governments lead the country in their own direction. In democratic countries, people with higher education are happier with their governments than less educated people. Whenever somebody tells you, look, in Russia, educated people are happy with Putin, this is not the case. Actually, data show the opposite. The more you know, the more critical you are about modern autocracy. You understand, you see through this information manipulation. Thank you very much. My personal impression from the late communist era is precisely that this boost of education, the second, third generation of Soviet citizens actually backlashed in the government that enhanced it at the very first place. Thank you so much for taking time and talking to me today. Thank you very much, Anastasia. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.